you have a Bible, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We will continue where we left off last week in verse 14, and we'll make our way by God's grace this morning through chapter 22. And hopefully, hopefully bring some clarity to sin and idolatry. Um, for those of you who have been here a while, you know that I haven't worn glasses long at all. Um, I was blessed my entire life with uh, better than 20-20 vision. And in the last year or so, I've had difficulty seeing things up close. And I'm still getting used to the bifocal. In fact, this morning, I was going to move the fan, and I looked down, but I wasn't looking through the right lens, and I got vertical, and I almost fell. And I thought, what an idiot. You know, here I am just trying to move a fan, and I almost fall into the closet. Um, when, when we don't see things clearly... When our vision is blurred, especially on spiritual issues, there are great dangers involved. Um, and, I, and I must confess to you that in my study this week of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 14 through 22, I do not believe that I have seen clearly the magnitude of idolatry and sin in light of the demonic forces that Paul talks about here in these verses. My hope this morning, my prayer for you has been prior to coming here this morning that God would reveal to you, as he revealed to me this week, the great danger of sin and idolatry for the believer in Christ. And he's talking to, he's talking to the church. He's talking to those who are saved. Okay, so let's set that right now. He's not talking to the unsaved. This teaching is for the church. It's for those who know Christ, who have salvation in Christ. So he's not even talking about something that, that can possibly impact your safe state. What he does is he goes back to something he brought up in chapter 8. And for those of you who have been following along, in chapter 8, the apostle Paul dealt with meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And the church at Corinth, they were confused because it was in the marketplace. It was coming out of the temple. And Paul taught clearly, he said, listen, the idols aren't real, one, and therefore the meat being sacrificed to them is not contaminated, it's clean. So he said, if you can, with a clear conscience, without causing your brother to stumble, then eat the meat. Okay? He takes that teaching from 1 Corinthians 8, 4, and he picks up where he left off, using idolatry to speak to, using the concept of meat and worship to pagans to speak to a much larger issue within the Corinthian church. And it's been a problem in the church for all of human history, going all the way back to the garden, and will be a problem until Christ comes again in glory. And that is idolatry. That is worshiping someone or something other than the living God. It's ascribing glory and honor and trust and value inordinately at times to something other than Jesus Christ. And he addresses it here unapologetically with an imperative starting right out of the gate in verse 14. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. He doesn't even, he doesn't even ease his way into this dialogue. He says, run, get away from it, flee from it. Like a, the imagery in the Greek is an army that's trapped in a mountainous area that's about to be ambushed. And he's saying, get out with your lives. Run for your lives from idolatry. Don't walk. Don't play with it. Seek on every, in every and all occasions to stay away from the sin that draws us in. Even those things that are on the border, those things that are, that are questionable. He says, get away. Get away. Anything that takes your focus and the glory off the living God, he says, be aware and get away. Now, the question for us this morning, and it was for me when I hit verse 14, why the extreme response? And it's extreme. It is brief and it's an imperative. It's not optional. He's saying you've got to run away from this stuff. 
But why, why so extreme? Why, why this heightened concern at this point in the letter for the church at Corinth and, of course, for the church throughout the ages to run and flee and get away from idolatry? Why? I'm going to give you three reasons that I discovered here in this passage. One, all worship involves others. We're going to look at the first point, that all worship involves others. Number two, idolatry is communing with demons. And you heard me right. Idolatry is communing with demons. And number three, our God is a jealous God. Let's look at point number one. All worship. Now this, this is probably a very simple point to some of you, but Paul hammers it because he wants to use it as a means of contrasting our idolatry and therefore worshiping demons. So listen closely. In verses 15 through 18, he wants to establish the fact that all worship of any kind, whenever you worship, formal, informal, religious, irreligious, you are worshiping with others. Not only other people, but other powers, other beings. Gods, angels, demons. You're engaged in that whenever you worship. The problem with teaching this in the West, and I imagine that many churches would hear this and say, Phew, we think of worship, our worship has become so me-based so self-centered that, I mean, our songs are about how we worship God. Many sermons that are taught are about how we worship God. Most of our lives we think about how do I worship God. And, and, and we become so focused on the me that we lose track of the fact that when we worship, there are others involved, there are other powers involved. And Paul wants to, he wants to ring that out here. There's no such thing as something just being your faith or something between you and God. It's corporate in nature. It's communal in nature. And we can't get away from it. The church at Corinth, they were making some major mistakes. Many had heard the gospel of grace. They had been saved by Christ. And they had a church in Corinth. But several in that church, they were going back to the pagan temples. And they were engaging in the feasts that were being made to idols. They were, they were violating their allegiance and their covenant relationship with Christ. They were going back and they were worshiping false gods. So Paul says to them, look at verse 15. He says, I speak to you as sensible people. He says, judge for yourselves what I say. We know how the, the Corinthians prided themselves on being wise. I mean, these, these were the Greeks, right? I mean, so wisdom and knowledge was very important to them. And so Paul says, I'm going I'm to say something to you and you judge for yourself. Let's see how wise you are at what I'm about to teach. And then he begins to lay, lay before them a threefold argument on all worship being communal. And he starts with the Lord's Supper to make his point. Look at verse 16. He's trying to establish now that all worship of every kind that anybody engages in has a communal nature to it. Other people are involved and other powers are involved. Verse 16, he says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? In other words, he takes the communion the Lord's table, which we have the blessed uh, privilege today of, of exercising the Lord's Supper today. He takes that and he says, it's way more than you just receiving a little piece of bread and a little wine or a little juice and having this interaction with God. It's way more than that. He says, the Lord's Supper, when you come into by faith, when you come to the Lord's table, and you take the bread and you take the juice that represents his blood, you are engaging in an intimate, relational presence and proximity to Christ. I, I hope that today the Lord's Supper is never the same for you. I hope we can elevate rightly what it means when you take the bread and you take the juice. 
Because Paul's saying that you're coming into the presence, the very real supernatural presence of the living God through Jesus Christ. When, he, so when it says here the cup of blessing, that was at the end of a Jewish meal, there'd be a cup of blessing. And they would take it and they would pray over it and they would ask God through, through the, the medium of that cup to, to bless the family. It was also, the cup of blessing was also the third cup in the Passover meal. And we get this modeled by Christ at the Last Supper. In, in Mark chapter 14, verse 23, at the Last Supper, we're told that Jesus then took a cup, the cup of blessing, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, the disciples, and they all drank from it. And what he was doing when he prayed, he was praying that God would bless the cup, and that when that cup would be consumed by others, that those blessings would bless those people. What type of blessings? When we, when we drink the cup at the Lord's table, we're asking that God would impart to us the forgiveness of sins that he does through the blood of Christ. We're asking that he would bring to us the righteousness of God through Christ, that he would give that to us. When, when we receive the cup, we are, we are being enabled by God, empowered by God to come into Christ and Christ into us, to be one with Jesus, to have that real, that real relational, intimate uh, bond with the creator of the universe. We're called to peace and reconciliation with God and with one another. When we take the cup, we're asking God to, to use that means of sanctifying us and making us holy. In other words, saints, when we take the cup that represents the blood of Christ at the Lord's table, we're asking to be brought into the immediate presence of Jesus Christ to experience unity with him and, as a result, be blessed with all the blessings that come from that union participating in his sacrifice and in the blessings, both. Same holds true for the bread. Look at the latter part of verse 16. The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? When you take the bread that represents the body of Jesus, when you break that, you're you're partaking in both the sacrifice of his body and the blessings that flow forth from it. What does that mean? That means... You're participating in his, the sacrifice of his body on that cross instead of yours. You're participating in the piercing of his beautiful body and him being nailed to that cross instead of your body. You are enjoying the great benefits of Jesus Christ and his body being forsaken so that yours would not be, so that you would be forgiven instead. That you might be reconciled to God through him. Colossians 1.22. Paul says, Now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. In other words, when we come to the Lord's table and we drink the cup and we break and we eat the bread, we are coming into the immediate proximity of Jesus Christ. The immediate proximity of Jesus Christ. It is a supernatural event. And therefore, we, part, we are participating in his suffering and we're participating in all the blessings that flow from the cup and from his broken body. Paul says, you don't believe me on that? Look at verse 17. I'll give you another reason to understand that all worship is corporate in nature. Verse 17, he says, because there is one bread, we in the Lord's Supper, not only do we come into communion, common union, intimacy with God, through Jesus Christ, but you also enter into common union, unity with one another, with the body of Christ. And so it has both a vertical component, union with Christ, and a horizontal component, union with one another. Are you still with me? So if you need to shake a little bit, stand up. You got, I want you hearing this. Idolatry is a problem in our church. 
It's a problem in every church. I want you to be able to shake it off and flee from it today. And, and Paul is telling you how to do that. When we come, into, when we come to the Lord's table, there's a, there's a unifying component. And Christ is that unifying element. And it binds us together. It brings us together. In other words, Paul's saying, again, when you worship, you're not alone. You're brought into the presence of other worshipers. He gives us one last example because I, I believe the Corinthians aren't buying it because I don't think we buy it. And he uses an Old Testament sacrificial system to reveal the power and influence other forces have on our lives when we worship. Look at verse 18. He said, consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. He said, what does that mean? During the sacrificial system of the Jews, they would sac- they, let's say, for example, they sacrificed a lamb. Part of that lamb would be burned up, right? And that would go to God. Then another portion would be divided up between the priest who made the sacrifice and the one giving the sacrifice, the actual worshiper. And then that worshiper would consume that meat on the altar or the place that God designated, Deuteronomy twelve eighteen. It says, you shall eat them, the sacrifice, before the Lord your God in the place that the Lord your God will choose. In other words, the, the worshiper would eat the meat, and in so doing, they would participate in the sacrifice at that altar. And when they would do that, they were participating in the worship of the God that altar was dedicated to. Are you still with me? That means he's saying, when they ate that meat, they were coming into communion with the God that that altar represented, that that altar was being sacrificed to. In other words, Paul says, I'm trying really hard to make one salient point through the Lord's table, through the communion of the body, through the sacrificial eating of meat at an altar in the Old Testament. He says, the one point is this. When you worship, you are not alone. Whenever you engage in worship of any kind, you are participating with other worshipers of like mind and you are in communion with supernatural beings. God, angels, demons. You're not alone. There's power. And he's saying there's power and there's influence in the worship. It's never benign. It's never innocuous. Whenever you worship, there's power and influence upon you. Whether you recognize it or not, whether you believe it or not, He's saying it's real and it's present. And we got to know that. During the 1980s, if you lived through that period of life as I did, this country watched millions of young girls and young women worship the material girl, Madonna. You say, well, why would you use such a ridiculous example? Because what took place in the 1980s with many young women my age was extraordinary. They worshiped this woman. And she came along in the 1980s, and I believe unmatched in the female sector. She set trends on clothing. She set trends on hairstyle. She set trends on jewelry. See, she set trends on sexuality and marriage. You say, well, how did that happen? They worshipped her. They bowed down to her. They passed out at concerts. They listened to her philosophy. They bought her paraphernalia. They bowed down to her. And her influence in the 1980s on women in this country, I truly believe, was unmatched. Worship, formal or informal, religious or irreligious, brings us into close and immediate proximity with other worshipers and other powers. It's not benign. It's not benign. And whatever 
whoever and however you're worshiping will have a dramatic impact and influence on how you live. I guarantee you those young women in the 1980s were not saying, oh, I'm worshiping Madonna, this is why I talk the way I talk. I worship Madonna, that's why my hair looks as bad as it looks. I'm worshiping Madonna, and that's why I'm engaged in premarital sex, because that, they wouldn't think that, but they were. They, were they, did, they weren't aware of the fact that their worship was having a dramatic and powerful influence on their daily lives. It's the same for us. It's the same for us. Which brings us back to Paul's original urgent warning in verse 14. Flee from idolatry. Why? Because of the second point. Look at the second point. Idolatry is communion with demons. Now, we don't spend a lot of time here in this church, if you're new today, uh, talking about demons or devils. But when the passage teaches to it, we teach to it. And Paul today is talking about the influence of demons. Look at verse 19. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? Paul is not contradicting what he wrote in chapter 8. He's not going, you know, I said that then and now I mean this now. He, he acknowledged in chapter 8 that idols are not real. And then he acknowledged because idols are not real, the, the meat being sacrificed to them is not unclean. You can eat it with a clear conscience. Don't cause your brother to stumble, but you can eat it. So he's not contradicting himself. But what he is saying here, I mean, you can almost hear the Corinthians going, what are you talking about, Paul? You told us that idols were not real and that the meat being sacrificed was not contaminated, and now you're telling us to flee from idols. Make up your mind. He's not confused and he's not contradicting himself. But what he is saying to us here, I believe should cause all of us to pause long and take a deep breath. It did for me this week. Look at verse 20. Paul says, do I imply that the idol is anything? He says, no. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, my teaching over the years, my my focus to enable and to empower believers to flee from idolatry was the magnification of Jesus Christ. And that is right. So I would lift up the glory of Christ and the power of Christ and I, would, and I would try through the word of God to bring his glory and his majesty and his immeasurable sacrifice and his faithfulness to covenant to bear on our lives. And in so doing, as you meditate and you think about the great work of Christ, who he is and what he's done, then you flee from the idols because you don't, you don't, want, to, you don't want to bring grief to the one who gave so much up for you. The Apostle Paul here he highlights a different aspect of it that I think is powerful as well. My desire was to highlight the wretchedness of our idolatry by the magnification of Christ when we give our allegiance to anyone or anything or any other, anything other than God in an inordinate way, people, hobbies, careers, money, uh, pleasure, false gods. Uh, but I have not, to the degree that I should have, magnified the other end. I have not revealed, I believe, how deplorable and how grievous our idolatry is in light of what Paul says in here in verse 20. Paul says what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. And we say, well, well, that's pagan worship. That's what other people do. All idolatry is pagan worship. Every time we sin, we are participating in idolatry. You're making the connection. That's good. I praise God for that. Behind the temple worship in Corinth, Behind every pagan worship of every kind, every shrine, every false religion is a demon, demonic forces. It's darkness. It's darkness. 
It wasn't some benign religious activity with, a, with an idol that wasn't real. The idols were not real, but the power behind them was. The power behind them is today. So many in Corinth, they, they thought they were strong enough to, to engage in the worship of God and the worship of pagans. Thinking, it can't impact me. It can't touch me. And they were foolish. And Paul's saying it's foolish for us as well. It was true then. It's been true throughout all of human history. It's true today that all worship, all, all pagan worship, every single religion, false religion, every single pagan ceremony that bows down to someone or something else other than the living God known through Jesus Christ is engaged in demonic worship. Those are houses of iniquity. They're houses of iniquity. All pagan ceremonies, no matter how Christian they look, are houses of iniquity. All so-called churches that refuse to teach and preach a crucified, risen Savior and preach a gospel of another kind, they are dens of devils. You see, that sounds so extreme. That's exactly what Paul is saying here. Every so-called church that doesn't recognize the essentials of the Christian faith, of Scripture alone and Christ alone and faith alone, that doesn't come along and preach and teach the true gospel of Jesus Christ, but, but, but tickles our ears by bringing us in and entertaining us with, with music and humor and ten steps to a better life now. These so-called places, they're not churches of Christ. They are truly dens of hell. That means, saints, that they're supported by and used by Satan and his demons to exercise darkness, to bring about darkness, to proliferate it. Many in Corinth believed that they had the Christian right and liberty to worship God and these idols in their pagan temples. They went back. Several who had come out were now going back. They had become arrogant in their faith and foolish as well. And so they started going back to these these houses of hell and worshiping these false gods who underneath there was satanic power. There were demons there. They were re-engaging in their old social and religious networks not to bring Christ to bear, not that they might save some. They were re-engaging for their own fleshly desires and their own pleasure. They wanted both worlds. They wanted Christ and they wanted their idols. They wanted their brothers and sisters in Christ and they wanted all the pagan worshipers as well. They were going back to their normal, everyday way of life. And Paul says to them, you are in grave danger. You're in great danger. Again, not in terms of losing their salvation. These are people who were saved by God's grace. He said, you're in great danger of ruining your testimony before God. You're in great danger of not running this race well as you've been called and equipped and commanded to run. Paul's saying, you fool." You're in great danger of having God discipline you. A holy God, a jealous God, discipline you. He says, flee, run. Hodges puts it well. Listen closely. He said, men of the world do not intend to serve Satan when they break the laws of God. Still, in so doing, they are really obeying the will of the great adversary, yielding to his impulses and fulfilling his designs He is said to be the God of this world. Listen to this, saints. To him, all sin is an offering and a homage. 
All sin, every time we sin, it's an offering and a homage to Satan. And therefore, giving to any other the worship which is rightly due to God alone. Do you believe that? Because that's what Paul is saying here. Any idolatry, any false worship, any time we sin, we are, whether we recognize it or not, or intend it or not, we are bowing down to demons. That is terrifying. That is terrifying, and that's what this says. Look at the latter part of verse 20. Paul says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. He got it. He said, I don't want this to be your life. I don't want this to be how you pursue Christ. I don't want you to participate with demons. And now we get it. Now we get verse 14. Now we know why Paul was so adamant and urgent and stringent with this imperative. Flee, flee. If when we come to the Lord's table, we come into personal contact with Jesus Christ and his influence and his power, if when we break the bread and drink from the cup, we come into contact and the power and influence of other believers, then the same holds true when we bow down in idolatry. The same holds true. The same principle stands. Idolatry, by definition, requires that we give worship, adoration, and glory to someone or something other than the one true living God. It requires that. It requires neglecting or denying altogether the glory that should rightly be ascribed to God alone. And in so doing, Paul is saying, it includes the worship and communion with devils, with demons, with Satan. The Greek word here for participant or participate, it's... It's diminished a bit in the English. It's not a bad translation. You know the word in the Greek. It's koinonia. To partake of is koinonia. It's used both in the Bible and in Christian circles to talk about fellowship, communion, and intimacy. Churches have koinonia groups or fellowship groups or communion groups. Same word here that Paul is using in the context of our communion with devils. When we engage in sin, we engage in idolatry. When we engage in idolatry, we are coming into the presence, the immediate proximity of demons, and we are being subject to their influence and their power. Cognizant of or not is irrelevant. That is what Paul is saying is taking place when we bow down to idols. Saints, I got to tell you, I had a full stop on this this week, a full stop in my studies. And I was so convicted in the idolatry in my own life and the sins that I continue to perpetuate. And I asked God to forgive me, thinking, not only have I sinned against you, my holy, precious God, but I have, I have gone to the other side. I've become a spiritual Benedict Arnold. I've gone to the other camp. And I've talked to the other generals. And I've submitted to the other, to the enemy. It's terrifying. It means that all idolatry, all misplaced trust, all allegiance, all our time, all our energy, all our monies that go to glorify someone or something other than God, other than Jesus Christ, all of our efforts to bring glory to ourselves, all of it, it's not, it's not some innocuous event and it's not just some sin against God. It means that you are actively participating in demonic and spiritual powers. Active worship of Satan, active worship of demons, and active worship of darkness. Are you still with me? 
I know some of you will hear this and you will say to yourself, this is extreme. Some will say it sounds sensational. It sounds like spiritism. I know, this is a hard passage. I didn't choose it. We're working through the book of 1 Corinthians. This is where we are. Now, we can fly by this, as a lot of people will do, or we can say, what is Paul saying here? And if we stop and we understand and meditate on what Paul is saying, I truly believe it will reorient your understanding of sin and idolatry. And it's supposed to. It's supposed to grab you by the back of the neck and say, do you have any idea what you're doing when you sin? Do you have any idea who you're bowing down to in your idolatry? It's terrifying. Some will hear this and say, you know what, I believe it to be true because I believe the word of God, but I don't believe it's going to have any real bearing on my life because I'm stronger than that. We'll be just like the Corinthians. I can worship God here and I can dabble in idolatry. It's not that bad. I'm stronger than that. I'm more advanced in my thinking than that. You're talking like you know, some medieval you know, pastor from the 9th or 10th century, but this is, this is the 21st century. I want to remind you of whom we are talking about. Satan, the once beautiful archangel of God, is one of the most powerful creatures ever made by God and all of his creation. He was in the immediate presence of God. And he had authority over all the angels. And for him, that wasn't enough. When he looked at God and he saw the adoration going to God, he wanted that adoration. He wanted that worship. And so Satan, a real, powerful, created being by God, tried to ascend the throne. And you know the story. God took him and one-third of the angels and he cast him down to earth. So he's here. The Bible says that when Christ comes again in glory that he will cast Satan and all the demons into the lake of fire. We know that's his end. Some still aren't terribly impressed. How persuasive is the father of lies? Lest you not be a bit shaken by this. How influential is the great deceiver? In the presence of God, he was able to convince one-third of the angels to rebel with him. In the presence of God, he convinced one-third of all the angelic beings to follow him and submit to him. That's influential. In the Garden of Eden, before sin had entered into the presence of mankind, he was able to convince Adam and Eve, who knew no sin, to sin against God. How influential is Satan? He even tried to fool Jesus. Right? I mean, he's in the desert and he places all the kingdoms before Christ and he says to Jesus, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. That's what he desires. That's what all the demonic forces desire. They desire worship. They desire their own adoration. They desire to receive their own glory. Not for God, but for them. And their, their power is Influential. And don't say to yourself, well, I know Christ. I'm in Christ. I've been in the church all my life. This can't touch me. He can't touch me. Every time we sin, without exception, we're turning away from the righteousness and the goodness and the power of God in Jesus Christ. And we are in some capacity bowing down to an idol every single time. 
Every time you sin, you're engaged in idolatry. And every time you're engaged in idolatry, you are coming into proximity and under the influence of demonic forces. That's what the Bible says. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't matter how big or small our idolatry is. It doesn't matter how formal it is in religion or irreligion. When we do so, we engage in darkness. You say, well, how so? When you're downcast or you're dissatisfied, instead of turning to God's word and feeding upon his word and receiving strength from Christ and the Holy Spirit, how often do we as a people turn to food and the idol of gluttony or to pornography and the idol of lust? How oftentimes do we turn to shopping and the idol of materialism or to movies or video games or social media and the idol of entertainment. And we say to ourselves, it's, it's, it's an idol. I know it's not good, but it's not that bad. Paul's saying it is demonic. Underneath these idols, which are not real, is power, real dark power. When we brag and boast about something that's happened good to us and we bow down to the idol of prestige instead of having our brothers come alongside and say, be humble and God will lift you up. We participate with demons. We commune with demons. When our personal relationships go awry because of our wildfire-like tongues, instead of seeking reconciliation and submitting to the word of God, we leave, we isolate, and we submit to the idols of the culture to flee, and in so doing, we participate with demons My beloved, wittingly or unwittingly, whether you know it or not, when you sin and commit idolatry, you come into the presence, you breathe life into the kingdom of darkness, and you are advancing the agenda of the evil one. This has always been the case for God's people. This is not a new teaching. Going back to Moses' song in Deuteronomy 32, verse 16, Moses said of the Israelites, you stirred God to jealousy with strange gods. Listen, you stirred gods to jealousy with strange gods. And admonitions, you provoked him to anger. You sacrificed to demons that were no gods. The same teaching goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. They knew, the Israelites knew, that when they were engaging idolatry, that they were bowing down to demons too, and they still did it. Paul makes this struggle eminently clear in Ephesians 6.12 when he said, our struggle, our struggle as brothers and sisters in Christ He said, it's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul's saying, we know this. You ever wondered, saints, why when you're engaged in the battle against sin and you're struggling with idolatry, how you can't overcome the idol? You ever asked yourself why? Can I not put this to death? Why can I not mortify this sin? Have you stopped to think that maybe you continue to fight against it in a worldly sense? You're using all the wrong weapons? You're trying to fight with flesh and blood, and this is a spiritual battle against spiritual powers? I truly believe that some of our struggles, the respo- our, resp- our lack of response to this being a spiritual battle is one of the reasons we continue to fail, continue to stumble. Idolatry is real, and the power behind it is real. We're not supposed to battle against idolatry with flesh and blood. We're supposed to battle with spiritual weaponry, with the word of God, with prayer, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with brothers and sisters in Christ. How many of you, 
with a besetting sin that continues to, to come against you, with an idol you know God hates. How many of you have come to a brother and sister and said, I need, I need you to come and we need to pray and you need to show me God's scripture and we need to do this as long as we need to until this idol is gone. How many of you have done that? Come into this community and say, you got to pray for me. You're commanded to. I need your prayer. I need your counsel on this because I'm worshiping demons and I don't want to worship demons. I want to worship Christ. Instead, we keep it to ourselves and we hide and we try to go it ourselves. It's foolishness. It's foolishness. This means, saints, that your intentions are irrelevant. You coming into the proximity of demonic influence and power whether you intend to or not, has the same effect. Has the same effect on you. I think that's one of the reasons that we're so susceptible to it because we, we really just don't believe it. We don't believe it's real. You don't have to intend to get in an accident by driving recklessly. Right? You, don't, you don't have to intend to pollute your heart and mind by looking at image that God hates. When you sin, when you feed your idols, when you engage in false worship, the impact is the same. The influence is the same whether we recognize it or not. And that, that means, saints, whether we engage in formal pagan worship like the Corinthians did, going to false religions, going to churches that don't preach a crucified, risen Christ, or when you bow down to the idol you have in your closet that no one else knows about, those idols that only you are aware of. When you do that, you're submitting to darkness. You're worshiping demons. I don't imagine most of you, I I pray none of you, would have any desire to engage in witchcraft or play with a Ouija board. You would say, behind that, there's dark forces behind that. Same with idolatry. Same with sin. When you engage in idolatry, you come into the influence and proximity of demonic forces, and it impacts you. It impacts all of us, actually, because we're one body. So first, we've seen that, one, all worship involves others. Other believers, non-believers, gods, angels, demons, and two, that all idolatry, all sin, all false worship brings us into communion and therefore into the influence and under the power of demons, whether we intend to or not. You ready for the last point? I told you this wasn't easy, and this is not an easy teaching. What are the consequences of such foolish behavior? Let's look at verses 21 and 22. Our God is a jealous God, and we should praise him for that. Our God is a jealous God. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. What is Paul saying? They're mutually exclusive. You can't do both. You can't come and worship at the table of the Lord, taking the cup and breaking the bread and eating the bread and simultaneously, willfully worship at the table of demons. And that makes sense, right? When we, when we come by invitation to the Lord's Supper, when God brings us into the presence of Christ, he's, he's necessarily taking us out of the darkness. He's taking us away from demonic influence. He's taking us away from the table of demons. That's what he's doing. When you gather in faith with the brothers and sisters around the table of light, 
You're being taken out of the table of darkness. They are mutually exclusive. You can't do both. Jesus made this clear in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. This is an impossibility. It's impossible. So you say, well, what happens when I do? What happens when I attempt to serve both God and demons, when I try to come to the table of Christ and to the table of demonic forces? What happens? Will I lose my salvation? No, you can't. If you're in Christ, you're in Christ. But what will happen? You can, you can make a mess of your life. I mean, you can absolutely ruin your testimony before the world in Christ. You, you, can really, you, won't, you won't lose your salvation, but you will lose many of the blessings that salvation brings to you. Many of the things that are precious to our salvation can be ruined in our bowing down to idols and submitting to demons. You may find yourself stunted spiritually. Stunted. You haven't grown for years. Saints, if, you, if you've known Christ for years and you haven't grown in the faith, look for an idol. Look for a demonic force that is keeping you stunted. We're talking about spiritual warfare here. You may be unable, engaged in the table of both demons and Christ, you may be unable to discern God's word rightly. And that's a horrible thing. That means when a brother or sister comes to you, discerning the word rightly, you'll reject it. Why? You know, the influence of darkness. You may be unable to pray well, or to serve well, or to minister well, or to bear much fruit. Why? You're under the influence of darkness. Idolatry has you captivated. You may find yourself resisting God's word and his immediate guidance in your life, actually taking a path he has no desire for you to take. You will certainly be tempted to sins of all kinds. And as a result, your progress in Christ, your ministry in Christ, your service to Christ will be hampered at best, if not utterly destroyed. How many times do we see in the news these well-known pastors of wonderful ministries falling. And the response within the Christian community is always, how could that happen? This man loved God. He was faithful in his service and his ministry. How could that happen? How could it happen? Idolatry. Demonic forces. Powerful influences. In reflecting upon this passage in our church, so many so many have left over the past few years, I truly believe as a result of idolatry. Idolatry came in. They were unable to hear the word clearly. They were unable to receive good counsel, good rebuke, good admonition from brothers and sisters. And as a result, they left. You say, well, how could they do that after 10 years or seven, seven years or 13 years? How could that happen? Demonic influence. It's not just flesh and blood. We're dealing with principalities of the air. We're dealing with real power. Real power. The danger is present and the danger is real. And that's why Paul says, flee. Flee. When God's children attempt to drink from both the cup of the Lord's table and from the cup of demons, God will respond. He's going to respond. Look at verse 22. 
Paul says, shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy if you commit idolatry? The answer is yes. You are provoking the Lord to jealousy. Are we stronger than he? The answer is, of course not. No, we're not. Which means what? It means that you have a jealous God that will be coming to you and responding to you based upon your idolatry. A jealous God. Now, when I use that word jealous, (laughs) I am not talking about cultural jealousy at all. The cultural jealousy that we have from popular literature and from movies is self-centered. It's debased. I I remember reading a sign that went like this. is don't let jealousy fool you. It's just another name for insecurity. I, I want to ensure you that the creator of the universe is not insecure. That has nothing to do with God or biblical jealousy. God's jealousy is the product, listen closely, saints, of his love being spurned and his covenant's broken. When the love that God pours out on us, when the grace that God pours out on us is rejected and spurned and trampled upon, when the covenant that God made with us is broken by us, God becomes a jealous God. And we will not overcome him. He is stronger than us. Praise God. He is stronger than us. God's jealousy is the result of his people whoring themselves after false gods and graven images, bowing down to Satan and to his demons. Again, from Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses. He says, But Israel grew fat and kicked. You grew fat, stout, and sleek. Many blessings. Then Israel forsook God and made him and Scott forsook God who made him and scoffed at the rock of his salvation. They stirred him, God, to jealousy with strange gods. With admonitions, they provoked him to anger. Our idolatry makes God angry. Our sin makes God jealous. And you say, well, but why? I mean, why is that his response? Is he, is he insecure? Does he need our love and adoration so badly that when we pay any homage or give any glory to anyone or anything other than God, he gets all bent out of shape and jealous and angry? Is that what's happening? Of course not. He doesn't need any of our adoration or any of our glory. The blessing is all ours. But he does this for several reasons. One, he's a good God. He's a good God. And when God sees his creation being destroyed by darkness, when when God sees those created in his image, people, bowing down to false gods and submitting themselves to demonic forces, his goodness demands that he does something. Praise God. Our good God hates seeing his creation being utterly destroyed by darkness. So God becomes jealous because he's good, but he also becomes jealous because he's just. God is a just God, and that means righteousness must prevail in his creation and amongst his people, in his church. And so when he sees us whoring ourselves out, bowing down to idols, when he sees his people that he redeemed by the blood of his son living in a most unholy manner, he must act. He's just. He's righteous. God will, thankfully, he will not allow you to love anyone or anything more than him. He must be everything to you. He must be the consummation of your worship and adoration and glory given. It must be him, and he deserves it. You say, well, that sounds selfish. Only if he's not God, but he's God. He deserves all glory and all honor forever. Don't fall asleep on me. He becomes jealous because he's good. He becomes jealous because he's righteous. He becomes jealous 
Let's make this really personal because you belong to him. You're his. He bought you with a price. You are a son or daughter of the king. And therefore, when you or I or we do not live as sons and daughters of the king, he becomes jealous and he becomes angry and he redirects our paths. He is a good father who hates it when he sees his children destroying themselves, destroying those around them, destroying his church. I am a sinful father and I hate it. And I mean that with all the sense of the word hate. I abhor, I detest when I see my children stumbling and sinning. I hate it. And I become jealous for their walk in Christ. I become angry when I see the idols and the sin of this world come in and try to grab them. You know, a song or a book or a, or a movie or, or, or a friend, the company, try to get them. And do I come in? I come in like a sledgehammer. And, and they can hate me if they want. By God's grace, they will see my jealousy, my anger is for their love for Christ to keep them on that narrow path. So if I, a sinful father, will be jealous and angry when I see my children sinning and engaging in idolatry, certainly our Heavenly Father will be with us. Praise God. Adoro shocked. Praise God. The most compelling reason of all, though, none of those. God's jealous for his name. He's jealous for his son. When we bow down to idols, when we come into the proximity and influence of demons, we are hating the name of Christ. We're maligning the son. We are diminishing the infinite sacrifice the Father made to redeem us, to make us his children. At the Last Supper, Jesus was teaching to the great holy ordinance we're going to partake in in a moment. And he was teaching that he's going to ascend the cross. And in Matthew chapter 26, he took a cup. This is the cup of blessing. And when he had given thanks, he prayed over it. He gave it to the disciples and he said, drink from it, all of you. Now listen to what he says in verse 28 of Matthew 26. He says, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus Christ had his blood spilled in order to establish the covenant between God and fallen man. Jesus Christ had his blood spilled so that our sins could be forgiven, so that we could be brought into this magnificent covenant relationship with God through him. His blood sealed it. His life sealed it. That we, sinners, saved by grace, might have life with God. When we worship and serve false idols and break this costly covenant, a covenant that is so undeserved by us and so costly to God, God will be jealous, rightly so, for his name, for his son's name, for the sacrifice that was made, rightly angry. I'm so thankful that he's a jealous and angry God. If not, we'd all be gone. Hebrews 10, 29 How much worse punishment will be deserved by the one who tramples underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he has sacrificed 
and has outraged the spirit of grace. Idolatry, whether you believed it coming in or not, idolatry, you must know, is a most serious manner, matter for us as believers. You cannot worship at the Lord's table and simultaneously bow down to demons. It is a double life and God will deal with you and me and our church accordingly. God demands and he rightly deserves our complete allegiance, our undivided attention, our ultimate affection. He demands and he deserves holiness in his people. Persist in idolatry and simultaneously come to the Lord's table professing Christ as your Lord and Savior and you will ask for God to discipline you. That's what you're asking for. Willfully and simultaneously worship God and demons, Christ and idols, and if you are in Christ, you are asking God to discipline you and I would argue most severely We're going to see this in three weeks. I'm going to come back to it, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But in three weeks, we're going to see this teaching in Corinth. Many of the Corinthians were sick, and many were dying, and they did not know why. And Paul says, it's your idolatry. You are sick, and you are dying because God is disciplining you. I'm going to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's most appropriate in light of the Lord's table. Paul begins at verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, meaning what? In an unworthy manner that you are bowing down to idols as well. He says, He will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. And then he says in verse 28, Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For everyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself, discipline him on himself. And then Paul says in verse 30, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. You know, God's, they're getting sick and they're dying as a result of God's discipline. Why? Because they come to the table and simultaneously bow down to idols. And God says, you can't do both. So then Paul says in verse 31, and we will do this today, he says, but if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The sickness and the death, it's actually a blessing so that you don't fall away completely and die and be condemned with the world itself. God knows how destructive this demonic influence is. He knows how wretched idolatry is and he will not allow his children to continue in this manner for any prolonged period of time. His discipline will come and praise God for that. But it may lead to your sickness or it may lead to your untimely death. And that is a very serious matter. I pray that you want to live every day you can to bring God glory and honor before he takes you home. I pray that you don't exercise an untimely death as a result of your idolatry. I pray that you do not experience physical sickness because of idolatry. Have you ever stopped in the midst of an illness and said to yourself, is this a result of something other than the physical world? Am I sick? Am I perpetually sick? Because I continue to bow down to this idol that I know is an idol that I know God hates. Am I bringing demonic influence in my life that's causing me to be ill day after day and year after year? I have counseled 
brothers and sisters. I said, listen, is there an idol? And it doesn't mean that there always is. I mean, we have fallen bodies. We're in a fallen world. But sometimes, saints, and I believe at times more often than not, we will not recognize the spiritual component behind our sickness. And I don't think we ever question it in terms of an untimely death. We always say, well, God's will be done. I don't know. There's more to it. There's more to it. So this morning, as we prepare to take communion today, as we gather around the body of Christ, around the table of the Lord, I want us to realize what this means. When you come today, if you haven't ever been aware of this before, be aware of it today. When you come today as a believer who's professed your faith in Christ and been baptized in Christ, when you come to take the bread that was broken and the cup that represents his blood, when you do so, I want you to know that you are coming into the immediate real presence of Christ. You're coming into his influence and under his power when you take the cup and you take the bread. That means that you're coming into his sacrifice and all the suffering that comes along with it and you're coming into his blessings and all the joy that comes along with that. You're coming into common union with Jesus Christ and you're coming into common union with us, with one another. So I will ask you, out of your love for Jesus Christ and out of your love for this church that you will recognize the idols in your life this morning and you will confess them to a holy God. That you will do what Paul just said, judge yourselves truly. Why? So that God won't judge you. This morning, as we take the Lord's Supper, I want, I want you to bring every idol that you're aware of and all those that you're not, you ask God to show you and I want you to bring them to the table this morning and I want you to confess them and I want you to turn from them this morning. Why wait another day? Why bring a jealous, angry God upon you? Why not receive the forgiveness offered through Christ and be set free? forever from these idols that still have so many of us bound so many of us bound I want you to ask God this morning to reveal to you idols you do not see ask him I want you to bring those idols and I want you to confess them to God seek forgiveness from God and then turn from them let's go back to verse 14 and do the very thing that Paul says I want you to flee from them today Ask God to give you the power and the strength and the courage in receiving the cup and receiving the bread to give you that deep spiritual desire to run with all your might and all your life in Christ from these hideous demonic idols. Today, by his grace, we will do that.